reading of God's word. Oh God, we thank you for the greatest gift you've ever given, which was your son who lived, died, and was raised on our behalf. We thank you also for the great gift of your Holy Spirit who comes to live within each of us, to guide us, who does it by his scriptures, this other great gift you've given us. We thank you for the word of God that is without fail, that is always authoritative and without error. We trust it because it is your word. And so now as we read your word aloud, help our ears, our hearts to be open, that we would hear it, understand it, believe it, and love it. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. The reading of God's word this morning comes from John 5, verses 1 through 16. You can find that in the uh, Pew Bible, page 890, or in the following Jesus Bible, page 1145 and 46. After there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under, now would be a good time to take them across the way. If any of you are are visiting and are taking your kids over, I'll encourage one of the grown-ups to go with them to get them signed up with our staff and volunteers. I don't want to get left behind. Can you all hear me okay? Faye, you good? You can hear me? All right, great. I want you to hear this opening illustration, Faye. I think you're really going to like it. Uh, Juvenal was a Roman poet who wrote in the late 1st century A.D. into the 2nd century. And while Juvenal was not a Christian, he wrote a series of satires uh, that critiqued the Roman Empire, critiqued their society, their way of life. And Juvenal's 10th satire considers prayer and what the citizens of Rome often prayed for. Again, he he wasn't a Christian. He was thinking about people praying to Roman deities. But a lot of what he says in the 10th satire sounds a lot like Solomon in Ecclesiastes. And the big theme that I saw when I was reading his 10th satire about a month ago was this. 
be careful what you pray for. The things that we want the most, the things for which we long, position, power, the fulfillment of our appetites, enjoyment, riches, the things that we long for regularly, the things that we even pray for, often end up disappointing us. It's not worth the effort. It's not worth the prayers. One particularly humorous section talked about Alexander the Great. Juvenal said that the world was too small for Alexander. He had conquered it to the nth degree, the known world, and there was still, he still wanted to conquer more. The world was too small, yet a coffin was now the right size for him. The world was too small, but that coffin was the perfect size. All his conquering, all his progress was ultimately futile. And, and that's how Juvenal felt about most of the things for which we pray, that we pray for vanity. So he concludes his 10th satire in this way. If you, if you like to take notes, there's a space in the back of your worship guide. But opening up, we have a good quote from a pagan there, uh, from Juvenal. So uh, this comes from, I think, the last paragraph of his 10th satire. He said, Nevertheless, that you may have something to pray for, you should pray for a sound mind in a sound body. For a stout heart that has no fear of death, that knows neither wrath nor desire, what I commend to you, you can give to yourself. For it is assuredly through virtue that lies the one and only road to a life of peace. So Juvenal encourages us to pray for and to work toward three things. A sound mind, a sound body, and virtue. A sound heart or a sound soul, if you will. Anything other than that, a sound mind, a sound body, and a sound soul or heart, Anything else is vanity. It's empty. Here's another quote from him in your worship guide. He says, the other things for which we pray are either profitless or pernicious. <laughs> they either profit us nothing, it's just vanity, or it hurts us. It's bad for us. So besides a, a sound body, mind, body, and soul, the other things for which we pray, they benefit us nothing, or worse, they damage us. Now, Juvenal's 10th satire was written after the Gospel of John. So I'm not about to argue that John was importing Juvenal's thought into the text. But in this healing narrative, we find a similar theme, a similar truth being presented. Because Jesus heals this man's body, and his mind was already sound. So Jesus gives him a sound body to go with his sound mind, but his heart, his soul, his virtue remains unmoved. After this healing, he has a sound mind and a sound body. They're both working properly, but his heart is not healed. And the lesson that I see is this. It's your next blank. First blank, in fact. Love cares for the whole person, body and soul. Love cares for the whole person, body and soul. Now, to differ from juvenile a bit, I'm going to assume that the mind is a part of the body. And if that's something you care about debating, you can come to our Monday morning men's group where we talk about that sort of thing. But focusing on the text, this man that Jesus helps, he has a sound mind. He's thinking just fine. But he's got a sick body. And his soul is sick too. He lacks virtue. But despite that, Jesus loves him. In fact, Jesus loves him unconditionally. Here's your next blank. Jesus' healing in this text was not in response to faith. It was unconditional grace. 
It was just, it was grace that was just given. There was no faith exercise. Jesus saw the man, loved the man, healed the man. Look at verses 2 through 9 in chapter 5. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. That's a long time. Some of you have not yet reached your 38th year. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water stirred up while I'm going down another steps before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And, and, and at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. This man doesn't know who Jesus is. He doesn't demonstrate any faith. And Jesus, out of love, simply tells him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. He heals this man instantly, unilaterally, without any invitation of faith, obedience, or anything. This is pure, unmerited, unconditional grace. But Jesus doesn't love half the man. He cares for more than his body. He also cares for his soul. The story doesn't stop with this one healing. Here's your next blank. Following this act of unmerited, unconditional grace, next blank, Jesus then invites the healed man to repentance, lest the healing of his body be to his detriment. So after his healing, he invites him to repentance, lest the healing of his body be to his detriment. Look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, listen to this, see You are well. It's the same word that Juvenal uses for sound. You are sound. You are well. Sin no more. That nothing worse may happen to you. Whoa. Kind of a stern warning that Jesus gives. It almost sounds threatening. And here's what I think is happening. Jesus has healed this man's body, but at the same time, Jesus knows that he has some deep, deep sin issues that have not been resolved. And if he doesn't repent, if he doesn't turn away from his sin, this temporary blessing of his body being healed will only be worse for him in the long run. He needs to repent to receive the full benefit of this healing. It's like the Lord's Supper. It's good for you. But if you do not take it seriously, if you come to this table and you're not a believer, Paul says, if you're not discerning the body, Paul says it's actually worse for you to participate. It's a means of grace that ends up being bad for you. A healed body with a sick soul is a deadly combination. So Jesus warns this guy to repent. And here's the kicker. When you look in this text, there is no sign that this man has any intent to repent. When we see this guy outside of his interactions with Jesus, he seems like a jerk. He's just kind of a sour, rotten fellow. Look at verses 8 through, nine, or eight through 11. Jesus said to him, get, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and 
walk. Kids, who does he sound like here? He sounds like Adam, doesn't he? Kids, what, what did Adam say when God came to him in the garden after he'd sinned? And, and he says, who told you that you were naked? What did Adam say? Do you remember? What, Jay? That's right. He said, the woman that you gave me, she told me to eat from it, right? So who, who's Adam blaming, kids? He's blaming his wife and he's blaming God. And then when he goes to Eve, what does she say? Any other kids remember what she says? Other kids. Joe. Yeah, the, no, 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 it was a serpent. The serpent made me do it, right? This guy sounds just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They come up and say it, it wasn't actually unlawful for him to pick up the, the bed, according to the scriptures. But who told you? Well, that man that healed me, that man, he told me to get up and to take my bed. He casts blame, just like Adam in the garden. Then where does the conversation go? Look at verse 12. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He snitched. (laughs) He sold Jesus out to the temple institution. This guy, when he learns who Jesus is, goes directly to Jesus' opponents. And what's the result? Increasing persecution against Jesus. So there you go. That's the story in John chapter 5. It's a weird story with a crummy ending. Like the pool thing, I don't know. Did it really bubble and heal people? Nobody knows. It's, it's a weird story with a crummy ending. But underneath it, we see a remarkable example of Jesus' love. He loves the whole person, body and soul. We say, see the same thing in the book of Acts. When Christ followers go out, when they heal people's bodies, or when they feed the hungry, when they care for the physical person, what do they always do accompanying those acts of mercy and compassion? They preach the gospel. They call people to believe and to repent. The effects of the gospel, those physical blessings, are always accompanied by the message of the gospel. They care for the physical need while never forgetting the spiritual need. But why? Because addressing only one part of a person is not the fullest form of love. Love cares for the whole person, body and soul, as Jesus cared for this man. So if you have a sound mind and a sound body, but you don't repent and know God, what good is your health? What good is your mind and body doing you? It is either profitless or pernicious. I want to apply this principle to three different relationships that you have. Your relationship with yourself, your personal relationships with other people, and then more broadly, our church's relationship with the lost. So let's start with your relationship with yourself. Here's your next blank. Christian self-care means caring for our bodies while not forgetting faith and repentance. Christian self-care does mean caring for our bodies while not forgetting our faith and repentance. 
So Jesus is more true than juvenile. Juvenile said, pray for a sound mind and a sound body because that's not within your control. But then he says, virtue is within your control. So pursue that. Seek virtue. That's what juvenile said. Jesus understands a human condition better than juvenile does. You and I have a barrier to virtue. We have a barrier to our soul being healthy. And that barrier is sin. Even after you come to Christ, you still have a barrier, which is your flesh. And the only answer to sin and the only answer to your flesh, it's not will. It's not volition. It's not effort. Seek virtue is the wrong answer. The only solution to the problem is faith and repentance. Here's your next blank. We are not only justified by a faith that leads to repentance. We are also sanctified by faith-filled repentance. We're not only justified by a faith that leads to repentance, we are also sanctified by faith-filled repentance. What is repentance? We talked about this in Sunday school earlier. Repentance is fleeing from the vanity and destructiveness of sin, seeing our sin and seeing how profitless and pernicious it is, how much it tears us up and it tears up our relationships and it tears up the whole world, seeing sin as it is and fleeing from it to the glory and joy and love and beauty of God in Christ. It is seeing how good and loving and satisfying it is to know him and fleeing from this trash to the gift that is knowing God and resting in him. When you realize that your sins have been washed away, what joy. And that's what happens when we believe the gospel for the first time. All of your sins, past, present, and future, are washed away. And then you are granted the righteousness of Christ. You are counted righteous in Christ when you believe so that when the Father looks at you, he sees your sin no more. He sees you as he sees his Son. We're not righteous because of our works. We're righteous because of Christ's works alone. So through faith alone, we are forgiven We are saved. We are included. We are adopted into God's family on the basis of Christ's work alone, not ours. Justifying faith leads us to repentance. But that same faith, that same process of realizing how damaging and hurtful and awful our sin is and how delightful knowing God is, that same change of mind is the same thing that sanctifies us. That is the grounds from which sanctification grows. You become more holy. You become more like Jesus. You overcome sin through repentance. Listen, if you grasp this one thing I'm about to say, it'll be worth the price of admission today. Whatever you paid at the door, I don't know what they were charging today. But if you aim to overcome sin through your will, through determination, through strict moral codes, you may overcome that sin. You may modify your behavior. You may wash it away from your whole life. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to replace it with something worse. Pride. Pride in your rigor. Pride in your morality. Pride in your strength. And you're going to be no better off than the Pharisees. You will be a beautiful tomb filled with dead men's bones. 
Hell is going to be filled with good men whose goodness was built on the foundation of self. But if you sin less and obey more because you enjoy the love of Jesus more than you enjoy anything else, that's totally different. That's holiness. That's sanctification. That's Christian growth. Being so overwhelmed with how much God loves us because of Christ that I can't bear to want anything less than that. That is the wellspring from which sanctification comes. It is not your will. You are not strong. Christ is strong. Until we come to terms with that in these self-made American minds, we're destined to fail. A growth, real growth, comes from trusting the gospel and repenting of sin. So Christian, do you care for your body and for your mind, but you've forgotten to care for your soul? Are you attending to your sin? Are you living a life of daily faith and repentance? Here's your next blank. Better a repenting man without a sound body and mind than a man with a sound body and mind riddled with sin. Better a repenting man without a sound body and mind than a man with a sound body and mind riddled with sin. That's what we meet in this text. The body with a, a man with a sound mind and a sound body, and he's eaten up with sin. Now, I know you, and I know that a lot of you do attend to your repentance, that repentance has been a sweet practice for you, something that has helped you to overcome sin that you thought you could never be free of. Maybe the message for you is, okay, are you caring for your body? We're called to be stewards of this gift from God. So how are you eating? How are you drinking? How are you exercising? How are you caring for yourself emotionally and mentally? Are you sleeping enough? Those are important questions too. Love cares for the whole person, body and soul. So when you consider your own self-care, how much time, how much effort... Are you putting into both of those things? But don't forget repentance. I'd rather you be falling apart and resting in Christ. That is definitely the priority. But love cares for the whole person, body, and soul. That's your relationship with yourself. What about your relationships with others? Here's your next blank. Caring for others means providing for their physical needs while not neglecting their spiritual needs. Caring for their physical needs while not neglecting their spiritual needs. That means your spouse. It means your kids. It means your coworkers, the people around you. Are you caring for their physical and their spiritual needs? When you look at the divide between conservative Protestantism and liberal Protestantism, it's interesting to see how we divide along these lines. Conservative Protestants tend to care for people's spiritual needs over their physical needs. Whereas liberal Protestants tend to do the opposite. I mean, it's not mutually exclusive. There's a spectrum there. But there seems to be a higher priority on one over the other. And I would affirm that the spiritual is more important than the physical. As I said before, better a repenting man without a sound body and mind than a man with a sound body and mind 
riddled with sin, right? So why can I say that with confidence? Well, to be frank, sin will damn you forever. A broken body only lasts till the resurrection. Sin is an eternal problem, whereas our bodily and mental ailments are by their very nature temporary. So, I'm a conservative Christian in a conservative denomination and a conservative church for a reason. But we still need to critique and shape ourselves without abandoning our convictions. So let's apply this principle to uh, this text, uh, the, uh, the principle of the text, to our relationships and then to our church. Here's your next blank. Providing for people's physical needs creates trust and builds relationships so that we can care for their deeper uh, spiritual needs. When we care for people's physical needs, it builds trust and relationships so we can care for deeper needs. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He meets a physical need, then he addresses the more important thing. If his soul is not healed, Jesus tells him, it's going to be worse off for you. Namely, death and hell. But here's the wild thing. It doesn't seem like this guy ever repented. And that's the nature of grace. Here's your next blank. People regularly take advantage of grace. And we would do well to expect that. People regularly take advantage of grace, and we would do well to expect that. Your spouse will take your grace for granted. Your children will take your grace for granted. The people you love will take your grace for granted. Poor people will take your grace for for granted. Rich people will take your grace for granted. Everybody takes grace for granted. It's the very nature of the beast. I have a confession to make. I've never told you all this. I don't even know if I've told the elders this. It's not that big of a secret. Several years ago, uh, someone called the church looking for money for gas. They needed to get to Alexandria to help a sick family member. They didn't have any money. And as is my practice, I went and met them. I didn't give them any cash. I don't do that. But I bought them gas with a church credit card. Then we went next door to McDonald's, and I bought them some food as well. But I, got, uh, I gave them the phone number of a pastor in Alexandria, and I asked them where they were headed. I got the address of where they were going. I wanted to make sure that the more important need was taken care of, that the spiritual need was followed up on by Bob Vinson, who was a pastor up in Alexandria at the time. So I got back to the church from the gas station over on 21. I called Bob up in Alexandria, and I told him the story, and I gave him the address, and Bob said, well, they lied to you. What are you talking about, Bob? What do you mean they, they lied to me? Well, it turns out the address they had given was to Walmart. And I'm um, pretty sure their sick mother wasn't laid up at uh, Walmart. So they lied to me. And I gave them church money to buy gas and food. Well, I didn't give them the cash. I gave them the gas and the food. I was livid. I was hot, man. That was God's money. And they'd taken it under false pretenses, money that our congregation had given generously and expected me and the session and the finance committee to steward well. And how was it spent? It was spent on a lie. Pastor Bob, some of you know Bob. He's retired now, and he's got a lot more wisdom under his belt than I do. When I reacted that way on the phone with him, he said, Jason, don't you know that's how grace works? God gives love unconditionally. And we regularly take God for granted. Why would we expect people to be any different when we're the ones doing the loving? To love somebody means to give of yourself, expecting nothing in return. And that means you're going to give sometimes and it's going to get taken for granted. People will take advantage of you. That's the nature of grace. 
It was hard to hear, but it was true. And it happens to Jesus in this text. But that can't stop us from loving profligately, with reckless abandon. That's how Christ loves. That's how he calls us to love. Here's your next blank. In our relationships, Christians should be the most generous with the things that God has given us. We, the church, should be the most generous with the things that God has given us because these blessings are a means to help others experience the love of God. This man experienced the love of God whether he believed or not. That woman that I helped, she experienced the love of God whether she believed or not. She experienced the love of God objectively. So we too should be super generous because when we give the things God has given us, they're experiencing objectively, tangibly, the love of God, their blessings. We are to love others as God has loved us. And people may not respond positively. They may take your love for granted, but that's not the point. We do it unconditionally, the way that God loves, hoping that we gain trust, hoping that a relationship begins. We love because we want everybody to know the love of God. And this isn't some kind of catch-22. This isn't a trick relationship. This isn't a, a hoodwink or a double cross. We love everyone. We love our neighbors without strings attached But we also want every neighbor to know the love of God. And our hope is to eventually talk to them about the more important things. So here's the question to ponder. I know you guys. Again, you guys are the most generous church I've ever served. And I'm I'm not just talking about tithing, though that's part of it. You're generous with your time. You're generous with your homes. You're generous with your presence. You are a very kind people. So here's the questions to this generous congregation. Do you have long-term friendships with people where you've been generous with your time, with your love, and with your resources, but you've never had the harder conversation? What Jesus said to this guy was tough business. Sin no more or something worse may happen to you. He's not mincing words. Do you need to have that conversation with someone whom you've loved and loved and loved and loved? The trust is there, the relationship's there, but you haven't ever asked the question. Maybe you need to write that person's name down on your worship guide right now and commit to praying for them every day this week and ask God to give you an opportunity to take that second and more important step If all we give to other people is our generosity and good things and we never give them the gospel, if they never receive Christ, it will be worse for them. Love cares for the whole person, body and soul. Here's your next blank. Eventually, love has to go beyond generosity to deep and sometimes difficult conversations about spiritual need. Love has to go beyond generosity to deep and sometimes difficult conversations about spiritual need. Eventually, after you've built up that relational capital with somebody, you got to ask the question, hey, what, what are you going to do with your sin? If you want to be more vanilla, you could say, you want to come worship God with me on Sunday? Or even like less difficult. Hey, there's this event, this thing called Awakens happening once a quarter. There's going to be some great music and somebody's going to talk about Jesus. You, 
You want to go with me? It's really meaningful to me. Maybe you'll find something meaningful there too. I know you guys, I know you're kind and generous, but let's not forget to care for the whole person, to ask that question, to begin that conversation. Who in your family, who of your friends, who in your workplace needs God's love through you? Who is it that needs your time, your prayers, your efforts, your palpable physical acts of love? And how can you engage them in relationship? Beyond that, who in your world needs the gospel? And of those people with whom do you have the trust built up to begin to have these harder conversations about real, deep, spiritual things? These are the questions that Jesus' example in our text demands we ask ourselves, personally. But I want to go a little more macro, and I want to think about our church's communal ministries, too. Invite you into the conversation, the kinds of conversation our session has uh, all the time. Here's your next blank. In a ministry context... If we care for people's physical needs, but don't share the gospel, we're failing to fully love them as Christ does. In a ministry context, if we care for people's physical needs, but do not share the gospel, we are failing to fully love them as Christ. It's interesting that Jesus starts with a physical need. He gives no spiritual teaching in that first conversation, but he does follow up. And as a church, it is not our intent to be a social organization that addresses physical, emotional, and material needs, we want to go for the souls of men, women, boys, and girls without neglecting the former. We want to care for body and soul. Here's your next blank. Uh, It's the last blank, and I'm not done, so don't fold your worship guide and put it away and forget what we're talking about. I want you to focus. The last blank. The prime activity in Christian mission is building relationships with our neighbors, loving people, by serving them, and then sharing the gospel with them. This is the prime activity in Christian mission, loving people by serving them and sharing the gospel with them. Now let's think about ourselves. Let's think about some difficult facts. In the 11 years that I've been your pastor, we've only seen a handful of adult baptisms. We've seen a lot of infant baptisms. We've seen a lot of children coming to faith, and we celebrate that. We think that is awesome. That is a miracle of God and a work of God. And we've seen you guys, Christians, growing spiritually. We celebrate that because we as a church are called to make disciples. So we rejoice in what God has done over the last 11 years. We rejoice in what God has done over the last 22 years in our church. But why? Why do we not see adults coming to saving faith in Jesus regularly at FPC? That keeps me up at night. Keeps your elders up at night. And I know what the statistics say. The statistics say that established churches like ours just ineffective in reaching the lost. Church plants, that's where the lost are reached. Well, you know, statistics are something. But I don't accept it as the only factor because the Holy Spirit does whatever he wants. And I don't want to critique the body. I'll critique myself. Don't critique my critique until I'm done. If I had more friendships with lost people, and if I was praying for them ceaselessly, 
and spending myself broke on their behalf. If I was just being ridiculously generous with them on everything. And if I was burning up my calendar to love these unbelievers as Christ does, I think I might see more adults come to Christ. I'd see a lot of those efforts go up in flames because grace gets taken advantage of. And because salvation is God's work, not mine, it's really up to him how adults come to Christ. So I could spend all that time and all that energy and all those relationships and maybe no adult comes to Christ. Maybe a thousand do. I also recognize I'm a dad with young kids. And the spiritual relationships in my home, biblically, are more important. My wife and J.J., Audrey and Liam, them knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and pursuing Jesus, that is a more important biblical priority. I'm called to those relationships before I'm called to the lost outside my home. On top of that, I'm called to you guys. I care for each of you spiritually along with our elders. So what that means is I'm limited. I can't reach every unbeliever in St. Tammany Parish. And quite frankly, our church can't reach every believer in St. Tammany Parish, or um, unbeliever. But if every one of us was a little more engaged in this kind of love, caring for the physical and spiritual needs of our neighbors, I have to believe we'd see something happen. Because when we're praying for the lost, you know what God doesn't do? fail to answer those prayers. When we are being the body of Christ and extending the means of grace to others, his grace goes out and it changes lives. Maybe I'm wrong. Feel free to disagree. Our session's been talking about this. We've prayed about this. We've chewed on this. One issue is we live in an affluent society. You know, people's physical needs really aren't all that apparent. We're not surrounded by poverty like we lived in some parts of New Orleans. But there are real physical needs in our community, and there are deeper spiritual needs. Your neighbors are going to hell, just like this guy was. He doesn't repent. So what can we do as a community to reach them? I can't tell you prescriptively. I don't know. I'm praying about it. I'm struggling with it. But what I can tell you to do is to love them. And to love as Christ loves means to care for the whole person, body and soul. So how many relationships do you have with yourself or with others where you focused on one of these to the exclusion of the other? If we would care for people's tangible needs, physical, emotional, financial, etc., that opens up opportunities for the other. Meanwhile, if we're so bent on people's spiritual needs that we never address the other needs they have, there's very little relationship there. There's no trust. There's no means by which to love them. The great command that God has given us, to love God and to love neighbor. And if we're going to do that, we would do well to follow Christ's example. Love cares for the whole person, body, and soul. We're going to do something weird. I want to invite you to stand. Uh, I want you to move together. We're going to hold hands. We're a brotherhood. We're a family here. And we're going to pray that God would do this work in us, in our self-care, 
in our care for others and in our care for others as a church. Y'all in the narthex, y'all come on too. Y'all are part of the family. I'm going to invite our elders uh, to open us up in prayer that we would be more effective in our love for our neighbors and that God would do the work of the kingdom in us and through us. And uh, if you'd like to jump in and pray, feel free. Lord, every one of us has relationships that you've told us are most important. So help us, Lord, to attend to those bodies and souls, spouses or kids ourselves, grandkids, family, close friends, this church. Lord, also give us opportunities. And, and Lord, we recognize, we've talked about this before, we're not all evangelists. But I pray that you would anoint us with your Holy Spirit, that you would give each of us deep love and great courage to represent Christ wherever we go. And Lord, if this adds not one more person to our church, but it leads one more person to you, we will celebrate. Because our desire is the glory of God in Christ in the hearts and lives of men, women, boys, and girls. Glorify yourself in us, we pray, through the power of your Spirit. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.